We're continuing this morning in our journey through the book of Genesis, and in particular, we're continuing in the narrative of Joseph, one of the sons of Israel, who, as we've seen at this point, has been a dreamer who uh, prophesied that he would rule over his brothers and even his father and mother. He was hated by his brothers, and for that, they sought to kill him, and rather than killing him, they sold him into slavery at the hand, hands of the Midianites. We see the Midianites sell him to the household of Potiphar, who was the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's kingdom, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We see that though Joseph was a righteous and a just man, Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce him, and when he refused, she brought a slanderous charge against him, and for the sake of Potiphar's reputation, he was thrown into jail. As we'll see, I think Potiphar knew he was innocent. But, and now, we're, we're in jail, and this is where we will continue in the narrative of Joseph. And as a reminder, this is, we're really approaching this narrative with a threefold perspective. The first being that of the cursory reading of the text. Where in the overarching narrative of Genesis does Joseph lie? What is happening and how does it relate to the covenant promises to his father and his father's father and his father's father? That being Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham in reverse order. Okay, how does it relate to, to them? That's really the, the first fold of the three views. Then the second fold will be one that we already should well know, and that is Joseph being a type of Christ. Typology is nothing new to the Bible. The Bible, in, as a, in its various literary genres, uses typology consistently because there are types, there are foreshadows pointing to a greater reality. And Joseph is a type of Christ. That's what we mean by that. He is a foreshadow, a, a real living foreshadow of a reality, a greater reality that's to come. And so that's our second view to Joseph. But then there's a third one. And that third one is how we relate to Joseph, but not in terms of like relational or geneal genealogically speaking, but what Joseph leaves for us. And the connection between us and Joseph is in Christ. And so we, we, we can't lose that. But I'm giving, you, I'm giving you the good bits now. And so let's journey through the scriptures. We're going to start in chapter 39 and work our, at the uh, verse 21 of chapter 39. And then we're going to work our, our way all the way through chapter 40. So please, if you will, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39, starting in verse 21. We are picking up immediately after Eric left off last week. Verse 21 starts, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Chapter 40. 
Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, that is Potiphar, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention to me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing, that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of, my, out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand and he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have shown us your goodness and your glory, your grace and your love and your mercy in the face of your son, Jesus. We know that Jesus is the Christ and he is the final interpretation of who you are. He is the image of the invisible God. And so today, I, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear you from above. Spirit, would you illuminate the scriptures to us that we might worship you rightly. I pray that we would heed the example and the warnings here in the text and that you, Lord, would be magnified in our presence and that we would exult in you this morning. Please be our joy, our peace, and our hope. Be with us as we dive deeply into your word. 
It's in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So, this is an interesting narrative for several reasons. Primarily because it's something that's foreign to us, a dream. And furthermore, uh, a dream that needs, in two dreams that need interpretation. We already know, it's been established already in the, the scriptures that Joseph is a dreamer. It was his dream that first initiated the betrayal of his brothers towards him, or the anger and the hate that they had pent up towards him because his dream had asserted that he would one day be ruling them. But as we'll see, dreams are, it's not really the main point of the story whatsoever, is that there are supernatural dreams happening. It's important, and it is significant, but it's not the main point. First of all, we see at the very start of this, it's the reconfirmation. This is the third time in chapter 39 that it says the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And this is what frames the entire narrative. And this is where we pick up immediately on some of the typology with Christ. And so, but it, it goes one step beyond. It's the third time that we see that phrase that the Lord was with him or the Lord was with Joseph in chapter 39. But it, it, it moves beyond just the fact that he's with him. And it says, the Lord showed him steadfast love. And the question must be, in what way did God show Joseph steadfast love? Was it in removing him from prison? No. We do see that there's favor with him, and that favor put, places him ahead of the other prisoners, and he has favor in the sight of the jailer. So certainly that is the manifestation of some of the Lord's love towards him, but th th it doesn't change the fact that he's in jail, <laughs> right? Unless you realize that it is God's steadfast love to Joseph that he is in jail and that it's made tangible to him. Otherwise, the text wouldn't say it. And so consider that. Consider that, that it was the most loving thing for Joseph for him to be in the worst situation. It was the most loving thing from God for him to be in the worst situation. This assaults our sensibilities, doesn't it? Because we tend to want to define what God's steadfast love looks like. Certainly, we have revelation of it from the scriptures. But we would be short-sighted to think that it's always a ooey-gooey feeling of, ah, I've got everything I need, so I'm going to turn and continue in my own way. No, no. And we're going we're gonna to see more of this teased out. Remember, Joseph goes from being left dead to being sold into Egypt to being a foreigner and a stranger in Potiphar's house to being slandered by Potiphar's wife to being imprisoned unjustly for a crime he didn't commit. This jail, most historians believe this jail was like a political enemy jail, right? Which is why the officers go there because in committing a somewhat of an offense against Pharaoh, they're now political enemies. So Joseph is in the jail for political enemies. And it's not gotten any better. Yeah, he's the head of the other inmates, but he's still in jail. <laughs> and yet, and yet, the text makes it clear. The Lord showed steadfast love to him. I want you to consider, just for a moment, a little introspection is helpful at times. Some introspect more than others. I do it a lot. 
but it's, it's this. It's that, do I consider all the things that assault me or confront me or change around me, the circumstances that I can't control, or even the ones that I can control, and yet I fail at them. Do I consider those circumstances, those trials, or those, whatever it could be, the suffering that I'm experiencing, or the displeasure I have in something in life, am I considering those the active hand of God loving me and revealing his steadfast love to me? Just hold on to that. Is that really God revealing his steadfast love to me? And if I don't think it is, then I think the question is not, is God loving or not? We know that he is, but rather, my view of him is, is feeble. My view of him pales in comparison to what he actually does in the lives of his people. Again, the steadfast love is, is made not in releasing Joseph, but by fulfilling his purposes within him, God's purposes within Joseph. The Swiss reformer John Calvin says regarding this passage, he does this that we may learn not to measure by our own sense the salvation which he has promised us, but that we may suffer ourselves to be turned hither or thither by his hand until he shall have performed his work. Meaning the Lord turns us here and there. He makes it almost circuitous, the things we're doing, so that the suffering is real, so that we can't be the judge of his salvation and the extent of his salvation. That is not on our dime, all right, or on, on our time, or by our definition, but it's of him. It's purposeful. It's intentional. The text makes it clear that while in jail, the Lord was with Joseph, and he revealed to him his steadfast love. Remember, again, Joseph is placed in a position of authority. This position, I think, really is because Potiphar wanted him there. Uh, Potiphar is the chief of the guards, and he's in charge of the jailer, and it's the jailer that let uh, Joseph rise ranks. And in, in that position, Joseph did have some freedom, right? He's allowed to walk and talk and to take charge over other inmates. In some sense, there's a freedom. Obviously, he's still under the authority of the jailer, jailer and Potiphar, but th- there seems to be, it seems reasonable that he could have escaped if he wanted to, but he didn't. He didn't. It, it says of the jailer that he paid no attention to what Joseph was doing. So if there would have been an opportunity for Joseph to escape, he could have done so easily, yet he didn't. He didn't. He didn't, because he understood there was a reason he was there. He knew the steadfast love of the Lord was with him. So now, that was my first section there, the Lord was with Joseph. Forgive me for not telling you earlier. I'm I'm gonna give you my three main points because we're gonna reiterate them in the the application. So that first point was the, the Lord was with Joseph. And for this particular point, I'm going to, we're going to look at the typological parallels. The Lord was with him. We see that in chapter 39, verse 21, of Christ, right? Of Christ, we see that the Lord was with him, both in Luke 3, 22, when the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove at his baptism, and 
the, the Spirit is with him, and the Spirit obviously is the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord is with Jesus the Christ. And again, we see that the Spirit is with Christ when he drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was the Spirit that did such. So all along Christ's temptation, the Spirit is with him. Okay, so we have that parallel. And then as a prisoner, clearly Joseph's a prisoner. We see that throughout the whole narrative. And we see in Philippians 2.7 that though Christ, in the form of God, he did not consider that godhood something to be grasped. And he set it aside so that he might come in the form of a servant. In the form of a servant. Christ came as a servant, as a slave. Joseph is a servant in this jail. And Christ came in the form of a servant to serve his people. Favor in the sight of others. Continuously throughout Joseph's story, he earns favor among secular men, among pagan men, because the presence of the Lord was with him. In Luke 2, verse verse 52, it says that Jesus grew in maturity, in wisdom, in stature, and he was highly regarded by his peers because he understood, he understood the scriptures well beyond his years. He grew in stature and in wisdom because the Lord was with him, okay? Second point. Joseph is the messenger of God's revelation. Joseph is the messenger of God's revelation. This is, for chap- this is verses 1 through 8 of chapter 40. Look, the two officers of Pharaoh, right, they were made to be political enemies of sorts. They somehow offended Pharaoh. We don't know what they did. It doesn't really matter. But you can, I mean, in, in a, most monarchies, even an Egyptian monarchy like Pharaoh had, it's, off, it's authoritarian, right? It's, it's if any offense is made against the one in charge, it's political no matter what the offense is, even if it wasn't even moral or intentional. It's a crime. And so it, it, it could have been the most insignificant of things or not, but needless to say, they were in jail. And they were given, they were given to Potiphar. And... Remember, Potiphar's present and active throughout this whole narrative, even though he's not really mentioned by name. Again, he seems to understand that Joseph is worthy of freedom and perhaps is innocent, but because of his reputation, he's not going to concede the fact that his his wife lied. We see that because Potiphar grabs Joseph and puts Joseph in charge of two high-ranking officers of Pharaoh. Joseph, if, he, if, if it was really assumed that he committed the crime, he'd be, he'd be dead. But rather, he's moving up in rank in the prison. So there's favor here, and it's all because of God. It's despite Potiphar, the Lord is working in establishing Joseph among these people. Each officer is given a dream. And the dreams had troubled them. It also seems that the troubling of these dreams is from the Lord. It says in verse 6, When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he immediately asks. He doesn't ignore it. 
he sees some kind of fret or consternation with them. Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Several things to note. It absolutely seems that the Lord caused these particular dreams for these particular men for his particular purpose. Many men and women have many dreams, okay? We typically either forget them or we ignore them. I have crazy stuff sometimes where my life is totally different than what it looks like now. And, it, and I'm actually nervous in the dream because I kind of secretly know in the back of my mind that this is weird. And I don't know what's going on. And then I wake up and I'm relieved. <laughs> but to, I toss it away. It's just a dream, okay? doesn't matter. Same thing, most dreams people forget. Uh, some... People have very vivid dreams that they remember. I know many people that have never remembered a single dream in their life. Beyond me, but I've heard that, okay? Point being is that typically dreams are insignificant. Typically. Generally speaking, they are insignificant, okay? And they are not the normative way of the Lord revealing himself to his people. They are not the normative way. It doesn't mean he doesn't do it. But it's not normative. It's not prescriptive, right? Dreams are still used even today, and I'll give you a couple examples. But again, they're not definitive. They're not authoritative. They're not prescriptive unless, unless they entirely run true with the Scriptures and the authority that they bear. But Joseph says this. Look, he's, he doesn't attempt to give these dreams, his own interpretation. Listen to Joseph. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Joseph is simply serving as the messenger through whom God will reveal his authoritative interpretation of the issue. Joseph is simply a messenger. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, I love this. This is in the law, and it's a promise given to the Israelites. It says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The point in that Deuteronomy text is this, is that there are many a things we will never understand in light of God the weight of his glory, his infinitude, it's beyond us. It's beyond us. Paul even says as much as, as recipients of the new covenant, we look through a mirror dimly. We look through a glass darkly. There are many things we will not know, but we know, but what we do know is ours. It's ours. God has revealed it to us that we may know him, love him, and follow him and obey him. In that Deuteronomy passage, the things revealed is referring to the law. And that this is the standard of righteousness of God. And it's by this we must live. That's what the things revealed means in that passage. And, and yet, there, God does reveal himself in many a way. But again, I'm, I'm saying that dreams are not normative. They're not normative. And in and of themselves, they are not prescriptive or authoritative. 
But Joseph knows why he's in the prison. He knows he is there to interpret their dreams. He recognizes that God has stirred in their spirits. He recognizes that he has a word from the Lord, and he is not man-centered in his remarks, but he says, does not interpretation belong to God? He's forthright. He's plain. We also see from the New Testament in Hebrews, start of the start of the book of Hebrews, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We no longer need those things. They can and still are used, but outside of the revelation of God in Christ, those things are not really to be banked on. Dreams are still used today, and I'll give you just a couple examples. I know some missionaries personally that decades ago met a man in China in this village uh, of, uh, if you don't know, the Han people, though they're the majority Chinese ethnic group, they're not all of China. It wasn't really until, historical tidbit, it wasn't really until Maoism that the Han established themselves as the primary people group. There are many, many people groups in China, and they're all Chinese, because they all live in China. And this, these particular missionaries were serving a hard-to-reach people group that were historically oppressed by the Han. And on the road, they met a man. This is in the mountains. They met a man, and he asked them, are you the men that God has told me to wait for? He had been waiting every day on the corner of that road because he had been seeking the creator God. And in a dream, he was told, you wait until messengers arrive. And in that moment, they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And he realized that his dreams had finally come true. That man became a pastor who then saw his whole village turn and repent and belong to Christ. The point being is the dream would mean nothing until it was fulfilled by the word. It was made real and it was established as authoritative because the word of God was declared. The, the written word of God that reveals the living word of God was declared to that man. He would have never known. Dreams are also dangerous. In Jude, that's a book in the New Testament, he warns that many a false prophet, false teachers, are driven by their dreams. They're driven to and fro by their dreams. They have these lofty ideas and that they cause them to veer from the truth of scriptures. So dreams can be dangerous as well. And often we see this in the Old Testament that dreams are given to wicked men to tell them to repent. We're going to see that there's a dream given to Pharaoh later. There's also dreams given to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's all to cause them to repent. There, there's a, 
there's a type of mysticism, I think, that's present in America, but furthermore, in, uh, among Bible-believing Christians that look to things that corroborate or support experiences and they do that they do so to the neglect of the revealed word of God that's dangerous it's very dangerous dreams can and are used by God oh another uh, modern uh, example of dreams being used for the glory of God Uh, many many Muslim background believers are converting, they're leaving Islam and converting to Christianity through dreams. I know many other missionaries personally that have seen this firsthand, but it always corresponds with the word. Often in these dreams, they either see a figure that for whatever reason they know is the Christ, they know is Jesus, or they see a book in the dream and they know it's the Bible. They can't explain it. They just know that the book in the dream was the Bible and now they have to go find one. And they do whatever it takes to find that Bible. And only then is everything confirmed. You see, what I'm, you see where I'm getting at? That the dream is not authoritative absent of the word of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so back to these men's dreams. There's two dreams, two officers, two dreams. And we're going to see that, we're going to see what they are. And so my third point is Joseph reveals the truth plainly. Joseph reveals the truth plainly. Remember, he has stepped in as a messenger for the revelation of God. And he reveals God's truth plainly. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. As it budded, the blossom shot forth. The clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. As I said earlier, there's no real need to go beyond what Joseph interprets. He knows the interpretation. Therefore, it's now in, in the scriptures. Therefore, that's, that's what it was. And the point is not really the interpretation of the dream but what Joseph is doing among these men. Joseph confidently gives the cupbearer the interpretation of his dream. This is important. He's not not fearful. He's not bashful. But he confidently understands that God has called him to bear witness to the dream's interpretation. This seems to indicate that Joseph fully understood that the Lord intended him to interpret the dreams. Look, there's no timidity, no fear, no negligence, or circuitousness to Joseph's interpretation, but he is confident, level-headed, prudent, and forthright. In the same way that he reveals the cupbearer's dream, he does so with the baker. Again, he is confident, level-headed, prudent, and forthright. This is particularly important for the baker because he knows the news will not be well received. In prophetically revealing God's interpretation of the dreams, look at this. Joseph gives a message of life to one and of death to another. He gives a message of life to one and death 
to another. And yet, Joseph gives the interpretations nonetheless. Is there a sense in which he was really happy to give the interpretation to the cupbearer and not to the baker? No. No, he just does it. Why? Because he knows he's a messenger of the Lord's revelation. So therefore, he reveals the truth plainly, plainly. Was Joseph the author of the interpretation? No. Did he neglect any detail in order to preserve self? No. Joseph revealed only that which was first revealed to him. And in this, I think this is, there's a bit of a parallel between him and the Apostle Paul. He understandably tries to get out of jail. He's like, hey, remember me on the other side. He's so confident that the dream is true. He's like, when you're free, please remember me and get me out of here. I don't belong here. I'm a Hebrew who's been put here unjustly. Much like Paul doesn't do things to further his uh, criminalization at the hands of rulers in the book of Acts, he pleads the truth always, and when there's an opportunity to get out, he takes it, okay? We don't have to, you know, have martyr syndrome, but we still, we talk plainly. Joseph talks plainly. And in all this, into chapter 41, it says he's there another two years. Another two years. And yet, the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. And so, as, as a messenger of God's revelation and as a re- revealer of truth, there's more parallels to Joseph's typology with Christ. Uh, Joseph reveals God's truth. We see that in chapter 40, verse 8. We see um, in Matthew eleven twenty seven, John fourteen nine, and Colossians one sixteen, that Jesus' mission always is to reveal the will of the Father. He repeats it over and over again. I speak not on my own behalf, but on the behalf of the one who sent me. Okay? And then in Colossians one sixteen it says specifically that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews says that he is the radiance of of God's glory, that Jesus is revelation. That's what it means for him to be the logos, the word of God. He is revelation. Furthermore, Joseph suffers unjustly. This is a continual theme in his narrative. We also see uh, clearly in the story of Jesus in the narratives of the gospel, that Jesus suffers at the hands of sinners unjustly. Luke 24, 7, he's betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then furthermore, Peter writes in his first letter in chapter 2 that though he was reviled against, he did not revile in return, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Translation, Jesus, though he was offended, though he was mocked, though he was reviled, he did not turn and give the same. But he entrusted himself to the judge, God, who judges justly. Jesus understood that there is a judgment to come, and I do not have to get mine now because they will get theirs on that day. Do you understand? We don't have to seek vengeance or revenge. Jesus understood plainly that there is a judge who will judge 
justly. So I will entrust myself to him. Okay, now we're in this application piece. And this is where we're going to look more at the third view of the threefold view of Joseph. But to get there, we need to still make some things plain and explicit regarding Joseph and type, typology. Right? It's already been made clear that Joseph is a type of Christ. And if Joseph is a type of Christ, then it follows that the narrative of Joseph is a type of gospel. Right? You tracking? Jonathan Edwards writes, one of my favorite Puritans, he's got this one, uh, I don't know how it got published, but people found just random scribbled notes he would write next to scripture as he read his Bible. And I didn't know he did that because I do the same thing. Many of you do. And so when I found this, it's like a little treasure trove of, of little commentary, very casual, and I love it. But in that writings, regarding this text, in this narrative, I should say, he writes this. By Joseph's being cast into the dungeon is signified the death of Christ. By his being delivered, his resurrection. And the ensuing great advancement of Joseph to be next to the king, as we'll see, signifies the exaltation of Christ at the right hand of the Father. Joseph rose from the dungeon and was thus exalted to give salvation to the land of Egypt and to his brethren as Christ to save his people. That's beautiful. Do you see that? The point, the primary point of the narrative of Joseph is that it points to a greater reality. Jesus is the greater. He's the truer. Joseph. He is the truer and better Joseph. And while there's a real historical narrative taking place, it's absolutely real. We do not consider it to be some fanciful story that's meant to prophesy about something later, but we take it as actual history written by Moses in telling of the salvation that is to come to the Israelites and even the land of Egypt. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Because in it, there's the divine scarlet thread being written throughout Scripture, foreshadowing of a, of a promise to come that was first given to Eve in the garden. And if we read the Bible through that lens, Revelation starts to grow. Revelation becomes greater and greater as we see more clearly who this Messiah is. But now on the backside of this story, we know it is Jesus of Nazareth. And that this story all along is painting a picture of the gospel of Christ. And because Jesus is the greater reality, he's the truer and better Joseph, there's hope for us. There's hope for us. Because what this means is that Jesus actually is Savior. If Joseph was Savior for his kinsmen, then Jesus truly is Savior for his people. And he is with us. His death, his resurrection, and his ascension are all proof positive that we have 
the presence of Christ. His spirit is with us, and his salvation is real. And his steadfast love has been revealed in, in his revelation to us. So, so because of that, right, because of that entire framework, we now can look to the narrative of Joseph from that third perspective. And it's this, Joseph as a model for us. Joseph as a model for us. Look, outside of Christ, we're doomed to wallow in our sins, our failures, and our fears. And it would be a pitiful thing for me to tell you to live like Joseph. It'd be pitiful for me to say that. Because none of us, none of us really would. And it would be the worst of condemnations. Because it would be your own failures turned against you. But the fact that Christ came to justify sinners means that we are truly justified as people if we belong to Christ. And therefore, we can look to Joseph as a model for us with real hope because the hope is not in me being like him. It's in that Jesus is who he says he is and he has declared us righteous by grace through faith and therefore, we, by the power of his spirit, can look to the model of Joseph and say, yes, that is the righteous life. That is the righteous life. And that sets a precedent for us. And so what is that third fold? What is that third view? It's this. We're going to go back to those three points and see how they all apply to us. Remember, Joseph is a willing servant. He's a willing servant to the prerogative of the Most High. Point one, the Lord was with Joseph. Jesus himself promises to be with us until the end of the age. I've got it on my iPad. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, this is after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Spirit of Christ is ours if we belong to Jesus, if we trust and obey him and follow him. John 14, 16 through 17 says this, And I will ask the Father, these are Jesus' words, and he will give you another helper, that's the Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Lord was with Joseph, but the Lord is with us. We must not lose heart amidst trials, suffering, and the corruptions of the world because Christ is with us indeed. The Father has revealed his steadfast love to us in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Joseph, point two, the messenger of God's revelation. We've been made ambassadors, we as the church have been made ambassadors for Christ and must herald his kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
We are ambassadors. An ambassador is a representative of a home country living in a foreign land. Joseph was a foreigner and a stranger in the land of Egypt, and yet he was a messenger of the word of God. That, is, that too is our glorious role as the church. We must not practice cunning or tamper with God's word. Right? A messenger is not really a messenger if he's twisting what has been revealed to him. Joseph declared God and not himself. The interpretation belonged to God, remember? 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We don't practice cunning, deceit. We don't tamper with it. But we reveal it because that's the role of a messenger. We make it plain. We must reveal the mystery of God in Christ. Joseph did not hesitate, but understood his role and responsibility in communicating God's message. Ephesians 3 says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, that's, that's all of us, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We are messengers. We are messengers. Remember, do not remove this from the fact that Jesus is the true messenger of heaven. He is the image of the invisible God. But as we were baptized into his death so we are raised in the likeness of his life and we are uni we, we are made one with him by his spirit and he calls us along to continue the fulfillment of his mission that's what the book of acts is about and we're still there we're still there nothing has changed but as the church as the collective people of god we make known the manifold wisdom of god point three Joseph reveals the truth plainly. We must share the truth of Christ plainly, not relying on human wisdom or coercion, 
but relying on the supernatural power of the Spirit of God to bring dead men and women to life. And that's not an accident. I want you to hear that. We, We must rely on the supernatural power of the Spirit of God to bring dead men and women to life. The New Testament is clear that anyone outside of Christ is spiritually dead. And furthermore, their sins have earned them real death. And yet, the the mystery of the gospel is that there's grace not just for Jews from a time long ago, but that the grace of God has been revealed in Christ for Gentiles, for all of us, the rest of the world. And that there's hope in that. And yet, and yet, it's all on God. And so, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's the gift, the treasure that we have is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must not hide it, but rather we must, by the Spirit, fan into flame, zeal for it, that we might make it plain for the world. Plain. Not relying on our wisdom, our schemes, our machinations, but only on the power of God to move in the lives of men and women. That's our only hope, because that's what saved us. Joseph revealed the truth plainly, and we must too. We must preach only that which has been revealed in the prophetic word. By that I mean the scriptures. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, he's talking about the transfiguration here, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The scriptures were more authoritative to Peter than his experience on the mountaintop hearing the voice of the Father. Just consider that. Consider that. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing first... First of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We preach that which has been revealed in the Word. 
nothing more, nothing less. We must preach Christ no matter the outcome. Joseph revealed the mystery of God, and for one man it produced life, and for the other it produced death. And yet his message was all the same. His resolve was the same. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. He's saying, the aroma we carry will be a stench to some because they are spiritually dead. And it will not save them. Because in the hardness of their hearts, they're rejecting the fragrance of Christ. And so it takes them from death to death. But to those who perhaps are seekers, or perhaps the Lord by His Spirit has already started a work, that aroma is life to life. It's the same aroma. It's the same aroma. We're not in charge of what other people smell. (laughs) But the charge to us is to be the fragrance of Christ. To live as salt and light in the world. No matter the outcome, for some it will be life and for others it will be death. But if Christ is real, then our role and our responsibility in walking in a triumphant procession as the aroma of Christ stays the same. Paul then says, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for this? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Mm. We must preach Christ no matter the outcome. So here's the final charge, if you guys want to come on up. Here's the final charge. Believer in the room. Believer in the room. Take up this glorious role and responsibility that we have been given to herald the mystery of God in Christ. Take it up. Take it up. Do not neglect the privilege given us. If we seek our own comforts and trust in our own wisdom, we will fail. And furthermore, we'll we will be miserable in doing so. It won't be life to us. But the very aroma that we claim to have will be like death even to us because we have thrown off the lordship of Jesus and have decided to go our own way. So be warned by that. But know that it's a glorious privilege and responsibility to herald the kingdom of God in the way we live and in what we say. Furthermore, if we trust that the Lord is indeed with us, remember, this all hinges on his presence with us, that he has indeed revealed his steadfast love to us, then we can walk triumphantly knowing that he wants to use us exactly where we are for his divine purposes. Remember, it was steadfast love to Joseph that he was in that jail because God intended him to be there. He intended him to be there so that he might use him. And so in your own life, 
whatever the circumstance may be, whatever trauma, whatever baggage, whatever suffering, it, it can be a plethora of things. And I know it. I know it. I'm not ignorant to these facts. I know that many suffer among us. And yet, do not believe for one minute that God has somehow withheld his steadfast love to you. But consider that perhaps even in that moment, in that situation, in this hardship, this is the love of God to you. And this is the promise that he is with you. That he's with you. Unbeliever in the room. Hear me when I say that I have a sure and prophetic word for you now. It's this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus truly is the image of the invisible God. All truth, all revelation, and all purpose is found in him. His call to you is simple. It's the call he gives everyone. It's this, follow me. Follow me. Put down your life as you know it and follow Jesus in faith and obedience. Let's pray. Father, who is sufficient for these things? But we acknowledge that our sufficiency is in Christ. That you are our strength, our hope, our rescue, and our joy. And that in my own strength and in my own wisdom and in my own determination, I will not live like I ought. And so I trust that the gospel is true. And we trust it as, as a church that the, the gospel is true. And the prophetic word has been confirmed to us in the Christ. And that we have everything we need in the resurrected Messiah. And because of that, you are with us and you are empowering us to live like we ought. To be the church, to, to be heralds of truth and of righteousness and of justice to warn men and women whether it result in life or in death. Lord, please have mercy on us. Be with us. Forgive us for our weakness and our trepidation and our fears. I pray that you would make straight the paths of, the, of our feet and strengthen our hands for the work. We trust in you, King Jesus. And it's in your glorious name that we pray, Christ. Amen.